With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, I think it's absolutely necessary that we need to start this week's episode by first setting up the scene. We talked at length about this last week on our episode about fashion and politics, but I think we might need a brief refresh before we can talk about an especially captivating group that emerged in the wake of the French Revolution. Yes, today we speak about the amazing looks worn by some of fashion's first hipsters, the Encroyable and the Marveilleuse, the incredible and marvelous ones, so named due to their distinctive manner of dress and stylish affectations. But before we can get to that, let's check back into where we left off last week, and that is with the very sad execution of Marie Antoinette in October of 1793. And the period that followed from the fall of 1793 to July of 1794, well, this was known as the Reign of Terror. And that was because this was one of the bloodiest aspects of the revolution. During this time, the Jacobin Party, led by Maximilian Robespierre, put thousands upon thousands of the party's political enemies to death by way of the guillotine. And many more were simply tossed into prison without probable cause. And as if all of this was not enough, France was now also officially at war with England, Austria, and Prussia. And to man these war efforts, a draft was instituted in August of 1793, and this proved very unpopular. But oddly enough, this forced conscription would actually have a direct connection to one particular aspect of the Enquiablo's signature look. To all of this general mayhem, throw in the fact that traditional religion had been abolished and replaced by some nebulous concept of the supreme being, mind you, traditionally the French monarchy ruled under the Roman Catholic faith, and Louis XVI, like many a king before him, ruled under this idea known as the divine right. So in other words, that the king's right to rule came directly from the will of God, So not exactly a concept the populace of France was really wanting to subscribe to after the overthrow of the monarchy. This church had way too much power. Yeah, and part of the reason religious orders were disbanded was because the Jacobin party saw the extreme wealth of the church as a threat. They seized all of their assets and instituted a new state-sponsored form of worship. Yeah, April, I don't know about you, but it's never been exactly clear to me what was going on here with this. Yeah, same. (laughs) (laughs) One thing we do know, however, is that it came with a lot of pageantry. And this pageantry was an effort to unify the deeply divided populace through ritual. Enter Jacques-Louis David, official artist of the French Revolution. We cannot underscore his importance enough in crafting the visual landscape of the era. In light of all the conflict over dress during the initial years of the revolution that was happening. Yeah, and if you tune into last week's episode, Fashion and Politics, the French Revolution, um, you'll get a far more detailed discussion of exactly what those conflicts were. Yes, thank you. Thank you for clarifying. Um, (laughs) But David... David was searching for a way to level the playing field, to erase class distinctions in keeping with Republican ideologies. And to do so, he turned his sights to classical antiquity, where the seeds of democracy were first sown. In the words of fashion historian Eileen Ribeiro, David, quote, 
aimed to demonstrate the nobility of the revolutionary cause by linking it to an admired classical past, end quote. For instance, David was the architect behind the somewhat bizarre festival of the Supreme Being, which took place in June of 1794. And this consisted of the singing of a hymn to the Supreme Being, setting statues representing atheism, discord, and egotism on fire, and then a group march to a massive paper mache mountain that had been built on the Champ de Mars. This has always had me scratching my head, Cass, because (laughs) on one hand, this is the height of the Jacobin Party's power. So thousands of people are being decapitated each week. Blood is literally running in the streets. And then on the other hand, you have this other group of people who are building a gargantuan paper mache mountain. I mean, what the hell was going on? I have no idea. It was a very tumultuous (laughs) time. And so you have that going on. And then at this paper mache mountain, people are wearing these costumes that are specific to this ritual, right? So the central figure is the goddess of reason, and she's dressed in a white muslin robe. She wears a blue cape with a red bonnet and was stationed on a throne of liberty, whereas governmental officials wore blue coats and tricolored sashes, red, white, and blue, and the plumed hats and small children representing different neighborhoods of Paris while they wore white tunics and violets in their hair. Women wore white dresses trimmed with the patriotic tricolored sash. And men, well, they wore Roman dress. So what this means exactly, we are not sure, but one can guess this might have been something akin to a toga. Yeah. The dress was clearly an important element in David's overall concept for the festival. Its uniformity underscored equality. And this would not be the only foray into costuming the French populace that David would make. Things had gotten super contentious in France over the wearing of the patriotic red, white, and blue ribbon rosettes known as cockades. If you were not wearing it in a specific manner, this might question your commitment to the revolutionary cause. And certain colors held meanings as to your political loyalties. And there were all of these incidents of physical violence in the streets over the deeper meaning behind the clothes that people were wearing. Um, I mean, these, these, these accounts abound, Cass. Yeah, and there were so many, in fact, that the government felt the need to intervene. In October of 1793, the National Convention issued Decree Number 1795 with the edict, quote, no person of either sex can force any citizen or citizeness to dress in a particular fashion, each being free to wear such clothing or attire of his or her sex that he or she chooses under pain of being considered and treated as a suspect and prosecuted as a disturber of the peace. Yes. And these were printed up and distributed to the public as pamphlets at the time. And we are super fortunate to have an original copy of one of these decrees in our collection at FIT. Um, And it's always a little bit of a thrill for me to hold it, knowing that it lived during and actually survived this particular time. I know that is so cool. And I I actually think that you... Is that something that you posted on Material Mode yes. for all of us to see? Yes, yes, I mean, yes. that document is now uh, 225 years old. All of this is true. Um, as also is the fact that these costumes that David designed for the Festival of the Supreme Being, they were not his last attempt to dress the French public. Debates over what to wear 
had indeed become so heated that it was put forth that perhaps a national costume should be invented, basically to eliminate all of these quibbles over the politicization of clothing. And David actually designed at least eight ensembles that we know of for the French people that would, quote, put an end to the aristocracy in dress, end quote. In other words, they would further aid in eliminating class distinctions through clothing. However, few outside of David's artistic circle ever adopted these patriotic Republican uniforms, but that does not mean that his own work, particularly in portraiture, as well as that of his disciples, was not influential. In fact, it was immensely so. It is in the work of David that we see some of the first examples of the Marveilleuse style, the marvelous ones. And we will learn more about these splendid creatures right after this word from our sponsors. Sebastian Mercier wrote this enticing passage about the sudden appearance of the Mervilleuse, quote, the women all go in white, the bosom is bare, the arms are bare, the bodice is cut away, and beneath the painted gauze rise and fall the reservoirs of maternity. A chemise of transparent linen gives a view of the legs and thighs encircled in gold and diamond bangles. The flesh-colored tights excite the imagination and expose the shape and allurement without any reservation. And such is the day that follows the yesterday of Robespierre, end quote. I mean, the daring nature of these clinging, semi-sheer gowns <sighs> bordered on indecency in the eyes of many. Yes. Very little was left to the imagination, and for the first time in 300 years, women briefly gave up the corset. Not everyone, but the painted portraits of avant-garde Mavreos show quite clearly that they were uncorseted. One portrait attributed to an artist in the circle of David depicts an unknown sitter whose bodice is a double layer of sheer linen, and her nipples can be seen through this exceptionally fine fabric, plain as day. And we will absolutely post an image of this painting on our Instagram feed. Yes, we will. I hope they don't take it down. What is that Instagram campaign that's up right now? Hashtag free the nipple. Free the nipple. <laughs> free the 225-year-old nipples. Yes. <laughs> um, but but about the fact that she was exposing her nipples, um, we have to remember that at this time during the 18th century, the exposed female nipple was not necessarily viewed as overtly sexual. Um, it was a little bit playful, a little bit teasing, a little bit coquettish, but but at the time, it did not hold the same erotic connotations that it does for us today. Nope. Um, and this was partially due to the fact that during the majority of the 18th century, the fashionable bodice for gowns was incredibly tight, and the necklines dipped shockingly low, and the corsets that were worn beneath forced the breasts up and out. And so just kind of as a matter of course of movement, it was not uncommon that an occasional nip slip might occur. And there are many prints and even fashion plates from the 1770s and the 1780s that, that document this. Um, and there's no indication um, in them that this was taken to be as anything besides completely ordinary. Well, just like shifts in silhouette occur over time, so also do notions about the body because those nipples that we're talking about might offend people today because it's not something we're used to. The fashionable physique, of course, and also what constitutes an erogenous zone. So at certain points in history, the exposed female neck or 
ankle was considered quite titillating, where to us today, not so much. No, no. Today, we basically parade ourselves through the summer heat, neck, ankles, legs, all exposed without giving it a second thought. But 150 years ago, this would have gotten you arrested for indecency. (laughs) Times have changed. (laughs) Yes. What was considered so scandalous about the styles of gowns that were worn by the merveilleuse was less about the probability of an exposed nipple, and more about the revelation of the shape of the wearer's true body underneath the dress. You know, these lithe and supple bodies were made plain as day without a rigid corset below. You know, the layers of gossamer linen or muslin, they clung to the stomach, the buttocks, and the hips. And one period source even says that to exaggerate this fact, women wet their gowns with water. Although, I have to say, I don't necessarily 100% believe the veracity of this source, but you get the point. They were considered very revealing. Yes, these flimsy white gowns were really the evolution of the chemise a la reine or the chemise en gaulle, which had become trendy in the years leading up to the revolution. However, this garment has now shed its sleeves and the ruffled neckline has become decidedly more antique. So waistlines still hit just below the bust, but... The chemise gowns of the Merveilleuse, they owed more inspiration to the Greek chitin than that of the chemise undergarment. And this was all part and parcel to the alliance between revolutionary republicanism of the 18th century and the origins of democracy in the ancient world. And to see this, we can look no further than to the work of our now familiar friend, David. So just who were these women who dared to bear as no French women had ever done before? They were young, they were vivacious, and many of them were demi-mondanes. Translating to half-world, the demi-monde was this realm inhabited by performers, artists, and breathtakingly beautiful courtesans. Not entirely accepted into society proper, demi-mondanes were often mistresses of very rich and powerful men, and as such, they had a little bit of sway, and definitely knowledge of the upper-class lifestyle, but historically few demi-mondanes would ever be accepted into the rank and file of high society. However, that would all change with the revolutionary thrust for democracy because the appearance of this shockingly daring merveilleuse style, as mentioned earlier, appears first in portraits by David, but also those in his artistic circle, and that's happening around 1796-1797. So that means that this style coincides with the end of the revolution and the earliest phases of the directory, when yet another system of government was put into replace. So we don't really have time to go into the details of this new government, but let's just say that the directory or the directoire would last approximately five years before Napoleon Bonaparte seized control of the nation. The fact that we see the emergence of this neoclassical style of dress first in the portraiture of David makes perfect sense if you consider the fact that these ultra-hip actresses and courtesans frequently ran in artistic circles, and they also worked as artist models. The look was almost certainly born out of the fact that many of the Mervias, themselves creatives, they were looking for an alternative to the strife surrounding mainstream fashions at the time, um, which consisted of a pairing of a short crop jacket with a skirt or that chemise en gaulle that we just mentioned, you know, the white muslin or linen gown with long sleeves and ruffles at the necks and cuffs. But fashion for a period of several years really had been in a form of stasis. It was a little bit static. And what happens with the Merveilleuse is they use the popularity of these 
previous muslin dresses and reinvented them as entirely new, as an anti-fashion that defined their subculture. The Marvelous Ones were inventive, daring, and pushed fashion into a new direction. In fact, throughout history, the most successful demimondaines were frequently the most fashion-forward women in France. They lacked the strictures of high society, so they were free to take risks in a way that the gentry just was not. And that's not to say that some of these women did not rise to social celebrity in the waning years of the revolution. With class strictures now more fluid, there was a bit more leeway for transcending the strict social barriers of the past. However, arguably the most famous of the Merviews did not need to concern herself with issues of class. She was already fabulously wealthy and an aristocrat by marriage. We speak of Teresa Cabarrus, known affectionately as Our Lady of Thermidor. Hmm, to explain how Teresa earned her nickname, perhaps we should take a side note and discuss the revolutionary calendar. Thermidor was the 11th month in the French Republic calendar, what you and I in April would refer to as July. Anyone else confused yet? Yeah, it is confusing. I frequently, even though I know all these things, I have to look at the chart to like tell me what the date actually is. (laughs) Because during the revolution, when the government banned religion, they also did away with the Gregorian calendar um, because the Gregorian calendar was based on the life and death of the Christ figure. And in its place, they renamed all the months, messed with how many days were in a month, and basically reset the calendar year back to one. So Robespierre and the Jacobin party were overthrown in July of 1794. And this shift in power is known as the Thermidorian reaction. Thermidor equals July. Okay, it's all making sense now because this is how our heroine earned her title, Our Lady of Thermidor, because she championed the petitions of hundreds of prisoners that were thrown into jail by the Jacobins. After all, she herself had been a prisoner. And for a few different reasons, she even held the political sway to come to their aid. April, she is such an incredible figure from this period. I don't think anyone is going to mind if we take a brief sidebar to maybe learn a little bit more about her. Yes, of course. Let's do it. Uh, Therese was born in 1773 in Madrid to a family of very wealthy bankers. Um, And documents suggest that she was educated in France by nuns before she was married off at the age of 14. (laughs) We're not even going to touch on that. (laughs) Um, But through her marriage, she became a very wealthy marquise. Um, Partially the money that was combined in the marriage was hers, partially it was his. Um, And they married in 1788, so only just a few months before the revolution broke out. And when it did, her home ended up being this destination for powerful but more moderate leaders of the revolution. The marriage was unhappy on both ends, sadly, and it is said that just about any man that came across her path, including her brother and her uncle, what? fell in love with a teenage Teresa. Yeah, her, her uncle actually tried to marry her. Oh, no. <laughs> and maybe one of the reasons um, for all of this attention that she was receiving is because she is has been described as being exceptionally beautiful. Um, one of Marie Antoinette's former ladies-in-waiting described her as, quote, no human being has left the creator's hand so beautiful. Yeah, and reportedly she had many liaisons with well-positioned suitors, including... After her husband fled France and they divorced, Jean Lambert Tallien, the politician largely responsible for overthrowing Robespierre and effectively ending the reign of terror. And it's through her relationship with Tallien, whom she briefly married, 
that she petitioned the plights of many people who were imperiled during the reign of terror. So prisoners and also aristocrats who had had their property confiscated. Her association with Talian drew the ire of Robespierre, who threw her in prison, which is where she met her friend Josephine Bonharnais, who would soon become the wife of Napoleon Bonaparte. Yeah. And the two, basically both of them, were released shortly after the execution of Robespierre, and they would go on to become leaders of French salon society as it reestablished itself after the revolution. Along with their other friend, Juliette Recamier, they were the sparkling it girls of the era. They were beautiful, they were witty, they were young, they were charming. And when the three appeared in public together, they were affectionately coined, quote, the three graces. Hmm. Their adoption of the classically inspired chemise gown spread the renown of the Mervieux style, taking this once anti-fashion statement into the mainstream. So now it seems, Cass, that fashion has been reborn anew. Indeed. And relaxed and fresh, no other portrait sums up the anti-fashions of the Merveilleuse better than the unfinished portrait of Juliette Recamier by David. So she reclines on a chaise lounge, looking to the viewer over her shoulder. Her white gown is a slip of a thing with a tight bodice, has transparent cap sleeves, and a waist that hits just below the bust, um, from which a skirt falls in an uninterrupted column that pulls on the floor. And her feet are bare, and her golden hair is cropped short into tight curls of about three inches, and they're held back by a Grecian-style headband. The overall effect of this painting and her look is ease and relaxation, which is really a stark contrast to the stiff artifice of portraiture of previous decades. There's really something fresh, something new, and above all, something very natural in this look of the Merveilleuse. The neoclassical look cultivated by the Merveilleuse was underscored by their choice of accessories. So most commonly, this was a fine cashmere shawl, which mimicked the look of a stola, a shawl that was worn by Roman women during antiquity. And the white dresses of the 1790s were the perfect foil for brightly colored and intricately patterned shawls woven from fine wool. And we actually aired an episode on these shawls a couple of months back. So tune into our Cashmere with a K episode to learn more about the contentious and controversial history of these shawls. All of this, they paired with flat slippers, something akin to ballet slippers with ribbons that tied up the leg. And they wore flesh-colored knit stockings with elaborate clocked designs at the ankles. Uh, the Murviov's look was simple, but yet it was deceptively expensive. <laughs> and artificial, because these neoclassical styles found many inspirations in the naturalist qualities espoused by Enlightenment philosophy on one hand, but rather Ironically, perhaps, they were also possessed of a certain amount of artifice, which we know fashion loves. And I can think of no greater example of this than the fashion for blonde wigs. Sebastien Mercier tells us some women bought these wigs like shoes, so they owned up to 40. Um, plays of the era poke fun at the trend, chastising women for going into debt to purchase the latest fad. Even only a couple of years after the reign of terror, we see the pace of fashion ramping up once again. It's ready to go. Yeah. And speaking of hairstyles, it would be the hairstyles endorsed by their male counterparts, the Enquayable, that were one of the most radical aspects of their look. And we're going to learn more about this after a short word from our sponsors. Okay, Cass, before we can talk about the Enquayables, I think we have to address some issues here with the terminology surrounding them. Absolutely. 
there's a few different terms that have been bandied about. <laughs> mm. uh, muscadin, jeunesse d'arrêt, which translates to gilded youth, jeune gens, meaning young people, and of course, incroyable. All of these terms have been historically used to reference this group of two to 3,000 reefish hipsters that we're going to speak about next. The problem lies in the fact that there are itty-bitty slight differences in the shades of meaning between some of these terms. Um, and they're so slight that we're not really going to get into it. It would take up too much time. But I just want to acknowledge that we know that these slight differences yeah. exist. Um, and But to me, I think the term uh, jeunesse d'arrêt or gilded youth and incroyable should work best for our purposes moving forward. Absolutely. And the term jeunesse d'arrêt slightly preceded the term incroyable, which doesn't appear in usage until about 1796. And what can we say about these terms? They are wonderfully descriptive the gilded youth, and the Incredibles. If you've already seen prints from the era depicting the Encroyable, it's likely that this is something you have not forgotten because their style was so outlandish and so over the top, it has been argued that they intentionally walked the line of being ridiculous. Yeah, and what is this all about? Why? I think <laughs> I think the big takeaway here is that both the Mouvilleuse and their male counterparts, the Encroyable, their manner of dress marked a sort of rebirth or return to fashion. Fashion had never really entirely disappeared during the revolution, um, but, but it was kind of static for a period. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it was frequently wielded as a weapon to antagonize opposing political factions. And while politics does evidence its hand somewhat in the Encroyable style, really it's been interpreted to be more about a return to the freedom of self-expression rather than an act of protest. In the words of fashion historian Valerie Steele, quote, fashionable young men were released from popular pressure to conform to simple patriotic dress. They wore an exaggerated version of English coats and cravats, not because they were royalist immigrants, but because the style was a development from pre-revolutionary high fashion. And exaggerated it was. <laughs> um, compared to the trend in menswear during the revolution for a somewhat slovenly, unkempt appearance, the Encoyables were accused of being foppish given the diligence that they applied to their appearance. On initial inspection, one might get the impression that their air of nonchalance was the result of laziness, but in reality, it was very carefully crafted. The English-style coats Valerie Steele referenced repeatedly are called square coats in period sources. They were a little bit on the longer side, hitting a few inches above the knee, but their defining feature was the way that they distorted the proportions of tailoring. Mainly the crazy wide lapels they feature. Oh, yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes these lapels span the entire width of the body. Uh, they could be black or green. And these collars signified their identification with this group. And when combined with short, tight waistcoats and fancy patterns, skin-tight pantaloons and riding boots, well, I think you can imagine that they cut quite a striking figure. And it's in their accessories where things take a really fun turn. Um, the shirts worn beneath the vest had exceptionally high collars, and the collars were wrapped in layers and layers of cravats all the way up to the tips of their ears. And the fact that their necks were fully ensconced has been interpreted by some as a visual allusion to protecting their necks from the campaign of the guillotine executions, which had been enacted by their Jacobin enemies. And we'll get to this in a bit. 
but we're definitely um, not finished discussing their somewhat strange appearance. No, because accessorizing all of these um, aspects that we just mentioned, frequently worn were large gold hoop earrings. So if you think pirates here, folks, you're on the right track. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) they also had uh, distinctive glasses known as quizzing glasses or alternately a spyglass, which was carried in one's pocket. And that was paired with a thick, knotty cane. What's interesting to me, Cass, is that these accessories, um, they're completely tied into the specific role that this subculture was playing at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Remember, at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that there was the draft imposed, um, you know, given the declaration of war on England, Austria, and Prussia. Well, this is how it plays out in the Encroyable style. The wearing of these glasses or the carrying of a spyglass has been characterized as being an affectation of poor sight, which was used by some of the Encroyables to evade military duty. That's that's interesting. Yeah. In the words of Sebastian Mercier, um, we've mentioned him several times on the show now. He was a real, really well-known contemporary journalist at the time. He said that the Encroyables were, quote, a breed of men preoccupied with appearing elegant or absurd and who were transformed into women by the sound of a drum, end quote. Yes. In fact, there was lots of chatter during the time about this. Uh, there was allegations that this subculture was nothing but a bunch of cowardly draft dodgers. And while this may be the case to some extent, as a whole, the Encroyables can best be described as being comprised of the petite bourgeoisie, newly released prisoners and young men of the middle class. So office workers, shopkeepers, minor government officials, whose positions might have been procured for them, perhaps to shield them from military service. Uh Uh-oh, we skipped over something. But it's my favorite thing. I have one guess, and that is that (laughs) you can't wait to talk about their amazing hair. Yes, I love it so much Um, because you cannot get more hipster than this. You really can't. You can't. (laughs) Um, Many of the Ancayables sheared the tops of their heads in this sort of really crazy, haphazard, disheveled manner. Like pieces were longer in one spot than others, but they left the back and the sides of their hair long. Um, and two cues formed in loose ringlets came down over their ears, and these were known as dog's ears. And then the longer back portion of their hair was frequently twisted up and held into place with a hair comb, or alternately, it could be plaited down the back in braids in a style called a la victime. Yeah, and this term presumably is meant to reference the victims of the revolution, so perhaps more specifically, those victims of the guillotine, because it's said that this hairstyle that was worn short at back was maybe in solidarity. I'm not entirely sure, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was similar to the haircuts given to victims before meeting their monstrous end. So this whole picture just keeps getting crazier and crazier. Yeah. And not to mention the fact that one of the reasons, aside from their fashions, that they were called encroyables was this highly affected manner of speech that they adopted. So they would pepper their conversations with the phrase, on my word, that's incredible. And when pronouncing the incredible in French, incroyable, they dropped the R entirely as they did in general. So they just all got together, I guess, and just decided, <laughs> nope, no more R's for us. We're nope. just going to skip it. So it was say incroyable. Yes. <laughs> so now that we have that picture painted, imagine a whole bunch of them together roaming the streets of Paris in search of Jacobin loyalists to beat the crap out of. Um, And that's part of the reason they carried those thick, knotty canes, which they nicknamed their 
quote-unquote, executive power when they used them as weapons. So basically, the Anquayabos were a sort of rowdy street gang policing radicalism. And the whole time, I'm just thinking clockwork orange, clockwork orange. (laughs) For this reason, sometimes the Anquayabla are accused of having royalist sympathies, but it isn't exactly that simple. Many were patriots to the revolutionary cause, but vehemently disagreed with the carnage inflicted by the Jacobins during the Reign of Terror. And it probably doesn't hurt that there is some evidence to suggest that there was sort of an unofficial alliance between the Committee of General Security branch of the government and the Genoese de Ré. So they acted as sort of a private militia in the interests of Talien and the anti-Jacobins. A paper of the period Le Courrier Républicain writes at the time of the Enclable, quote, hunting Jacobins just as wolves used to be hunted in the British Isles. It has even been suggested that perhaps they were secretly paid under the table for this service and that perhaps some of this money was used to fund their wild wardrobes. I mean, whatever you have to say about their style, you cannot deny that their jackets were skillfully tailored, peculiar perhaps, but nonetheless very skillfully tailored. Yes, this is a very deliberate, thought-out style of dressing for sure. And it seems that people found awe and delight in the ludicrousness of the Enclable style because in 1797, artist Carl Vernet published a slightly satirical series of prints depicting the Enclable and Merveilleuse, and they were an immediate hit. It is said that even the very subjects of his comedic skewering rushed out to snap them up, and many other artists and printmakers would follow in Vernet's footsteps, poking fun at the Genèse de Ré, while unscrupulous printmakers capitalized on the popularity of Vernet's prints by simply copying them. Oh yeah, this happened a lot. I've seen so many knockoffs of Vernet's prints from this period. Um, and also following in Carl Vernet's footsteps was be his very own son, Horace Vernet, who published his own suite of prints depicting hipster fashions of the Enquiables and Merveilleuse between the years of 1810 and 1818. So if you have ever seen these prints of Anquayabalas and Merveilleuse in the past, it's probably more likely that you've seen Horace Vernet's plates, not the 18th century versions by his father, as these are much, much, much more rare. Just like our subculture, which would become increasingly more obscure as we move into the 19th century. What can be considered some of the first examples of anti-fashion, the styles invented by the Merveilleuse, became increasingly co-opted by mainstream fashion with the passage of time. And although the silhouette of the skirts became increasingly A-line, these little white dresses remain the height of fashion for almost three decades, and they permeate English Regency fashion as well. And the Enquiable? Well, their legacy lived on as well in the form of the sartorial convictions of the great dandies of the 19th century, like Beau Brummel and Robert de Montesquieu. And we do have an episode on dandyism plugged into our upcoming schedule, so stay tuned for that. That does it for us this week. Until next time, we hope you consider incorporating something incredible and marvelous into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. For images of our outlandish friends featured in this episode, check out our Instagram feed at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can find us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. If you'd like to email us, you can do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. And as always, recommended readings for each episode can be found on our website, www.dressedpodcast.com. And if you love the show and want to sport a dress t-shirt, 
tank top, sweatshirt, or any other number of dressed merchandise, visit tpublic.com slash dressed. There's also notebooks, tote bags, coffee mugs, you name it. Yeah, and that's teepublic.com slash dressed. And last but not least, we'd like to thank our very own Mervius and Encore our producers, Holly Fry and Casey Pagram, as well as everyone else at Works that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. Thank you.